So this morning, we're coming back to the book of Daniel, the life of this prophet in exile. We've been thinking so much about the, the first two chapters. We're now in chapter three, and Yuri's going to come and, and read it for us. Uh, if you want to follow along, it's uh, Daniel chapter three. We're going to read the whole chapter together. I'm going to read uh, from Daniel chapter 3. You can just find it on your mobile devices or in a Bible. Uh, there are some church Bibles at the back of the church as well behind you. If you want to grab one, um, in a church Bible, it's on a page 886. So, uh, Daniel chapter 3. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 90 feet high and 9 feet um, wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. It then summoned uh, the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image of that king Nebuchadnezzar has set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, this is what you have uh, commanded to do. O peoples, nations, and men of every language, as soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into the blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the peoples Nations and men of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that ne King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. At this time, uh, some astrologers uh, came forward and um, denounced the Jews. They said to King ne Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You have issued a decree, O king, that everyone who hears the sound of the horn Flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold. And that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, It is true, uh, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my god or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now then, you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, 
pipes and all kinds of music if you are really uh, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made very good but if you do not worship it you will be thrown um, immediately into blazing furnace then what will uh, what will God um, then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than usual, and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was uh, so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into blazing furnace. The king Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet and in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that were tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, O king, he said. Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was um, a hair of their heads signed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise to be God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted him in him and defiled the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces, and their houses be turned into piles of rubble. For no other god can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Amen. Amen. Thank you. 
Thanks, Yuri. Yuri found out about two minutes before the service that he was reading that. So can we thank Yuri for that long chapter and reading it well? Lots of, lots of lists and words in that. It was fantastic. Wow. I don't know if you, um, when you're in the car with kids, have games that you play. Do you play games in the car with kids? Uh, we were driving home from somewhere uh, last night, and I don't know how it came about, really, but we started playing this game, Good News, Bad News. I don't know if you know this game. It's a great game to play in the car. Somebody makes a statement, and the next person's got to turn that statement into bad news, and then the next person's got to turn it into good news, and, and so on and so forth. And we were playing this game for a while uh, in the car. You're all going to try it now on the way home, aren't you? Nobody's nodding. Nobody's going to give this a go. It's great fun, trust me. Uh, and we were doing this for a while, bouncing something back and forth. And, and then one of the kids came out with something like, uh, yes, but we believe in God who saves us from everything. And even if we do die, we'll go to heaven and be with him forever. And I just said, you win. That's, that's just great. There's nowhere, there's nowhere else to go with that. And I wonder sometimes if that's how it can feel as people of faith. That no matter what the challenges, no matter what the question is that's been asked of us, the demand is to somehow try and flip it and to turn it into something good. And sometimes things are just hard, just difficult. And it's easy, isn't it, to have that kind of faith that tries to walk through life with a, a painted, cheesy smile on and says, well, I'm, I'm blessed, so no matter what happens, I'm blessed but never deals with the pain underneath it, never deals with the, the reality. I, I've got a question for us today. Now, you might think as somebody who teaches and preaches the Bible, I should know the answer to this, but I want you guys to have a think about it as well. The question is this. What is faith? What is it that we talk about? What? Is it that people fall out about? What is it that we see increasingly in our headlines today? We talk about different faiths. So perhaps the word faith just means a different belief system, a, a different set of creeds or a different set of statements that certain people do or don't agree with. We talk about people of faith, statements of faith, communities of faith. Some people talk about taking a step of faith, other people talk about taking a, a leap of faith. But what are we actually talking about when we talk about faith? I don't know if you saw any of the rugby that was on the TV yesterday. But for any fans that went there, I mean, that, if you want to look for a statement of faith, people travelled up to Scotland <laughs> to watch Wales play uh, yesterday. Really interesting comment made by Dan Bigger in the week, asking people not to lose faith in their team, which is kind of a really interesting thing when you think about it, because we're not going to be on the pitch, thankfully. Nobody wants me to play for Wales. They might want my son, but they don't want me to play for Wales. Um, so why does it matter if I have faith in Wales winning or not? And yet anyone who knows if they've tried to play sport or play an instrument or perform in any kind of way, to have people there supporting you, cheering for you, willing you on singing bread of heaven for you, does something to you, doesn't it? To know that people are cheering for you. A couple of weeks ago, I had a text message off someone saying, thank you for what you shared online. I, I shared it with somebody, and it really blessed them, so thank you for those words. And to be honest, it's a weird thing when you're 
when you're doing that, you never really know where it's going, who's going to listen to it, if anyone. It's a statement of faith even producing this stuff. So to know that it was a blessing was a real encouragement. And it does something to you, doesn't it? It's like a breath of air. It's like a breath of, of oxygen. To know people are, are cheering for you. Don't lose faith, he was asking, uh, in us. Really interesting. Well, a while ago, I heard about a, a story that somebody was sharing about a major evangelistic campaign. And they were meeting in the stadium where this campaign was going to be taking place. And there was some news that a awful weather conditions were coming. And they were weighing up whether they could run with this evangelistic event or not. And so people were praying. And one woman gets up to pray and prays with this real sense of, I mean, passion isn't the word really. It was just this angry rant. And at one point in her prayer, she said, God, I command you on the honor of your name, that it, the weather's going to be fine. And as it happens, the weather was fine. But this story was being told as an example of somebody's faith. And I thought to myself, if that's what faith looks like, I don't know if I've got it. To, com- to command God on the honor of his name. I don't know if I've got it. I don't know if I want it, if that's what faith looks like. So what does faith look like? Sadly, in some parts of our world, faith is a weapon. It's a standard against which people are judged. And if you're judged unworthy, if you're judged lacking, the consequences are serious. That's on a big scale, but on smaller scales as well. Sometimes faith can be weaponized. The number of blogs or YouTube sites which are all about, we believe better than they do. We believe more than them. Don't become one of them within our own faith. If that's faith, I don't know if I want it. It means I've got to stand apart and argue and batter and barter and battle. Is that what faith is? Amazingly, somebody was writing about this recently, a a philosopher, uh, Daniel Dunnett, who might be... um, kind of grouped together with a group they call themselves the, the New Atheists. And he was talking about whether faith at all is um, scientifically viable. He was saying because at the end of the day, human beings are a little more than sort of wiring, really, chips. So we make decisions based, based on hardwired things. He said it's a little bit like playing chess against a computer. So the computer's been programmed with the rules of chess, and it can play against you. But it has no desire to protect its king. Uh, If it wins, it doesn't gloat. It's not pleased about it. If it loses, it doesn't mope around. It doesn't get depressed about it. And really, human beings should see themselves in that way. If we could deal with each other as just chips and wiring, programming, uh, hardwired that that, that we're reacting to. And I thought to myself, that's a strange thing to sit down and write about. To say that it's just chips and wiring. It doesn't really matter what you do and don't believe. And yet, you're sitting down writing stuff in the hope and the faith that it will be published and read and that you'll change people's minds about that. It's very hard to live consistently with that kind of a mindset. It's hard to live consistently in that world. We know that some things are more important, some things are all important. What does it mean to have faith? And what does that do for us? What does that mean uh, for us in our, our lives today? 
Uh, as some of you know, at the start of the year, I, I had a, a reading week, and uh, one of the books uh, I read was by one of my all-time favorite authors, a guy called Lewis Smedes. Uh, he's written now, I think it's four books, it might even be five, on forgiveness. So if our world has an expert on forgiveness, he's the closest thing we've got to it. And all of them are clever and deep and inspiring and stunning. Uh, and towards the end uh, of his life, he starts to, to write another book that he felt prompted to write. And as he began writing it, a friend of his sent him a note to say, I really feel I've got a message from the Lord for you that you're meant to write an autobiography. And he just thought, nobody's going to want to read this retired Baptist minister, lecturer's um, autobiography. But the more he thought about it, the more he thought there might be something in looking over my life and sharing my life with people. And he decides to make this the project of his retirement. He says, there are some things about God that where I stop to believe them, where I to stop believing them, that's different, isn't it? Stop believing them. My world would change color. My hope would turn sour, and the meaning of my life would be yanked inside out. That's probably true for all of us here today. The things I believe about God and this world he's created for us and his relationship with it and our relationship with him and how it all works together. <laughs> and if I were to discover that that somehow wasn't real, it would all fall apart. It would all make no sense to me at all. It would lose its color, its life. And then he goes on to say, but I believe other things about God that were I to stop believing them would not undermine my faith, would not dim my hope would not change the meaning of my life. So I set out to separate the theological opinions I hold, or that I doubt, from the faith that I live by. And what follows is a beautiful book that is moving and funny and brilliant, where he looks back over his life to try and work out where do I get my faith from and what are the things that I actually believe. That when all the other opinions or interesting bits, and some of it is important, but it's not all important, once that is stripped away, what is the faith I actually live by? I was thinking to myself, that would be a great project for us, wouldn't it? To give some time to think about, what do I actually believe? You know, not when I'm here and the music's loud and we're all stood singing together. When I'm alone and I'm thinking about my life. And I'm making choices about the person I want to be and the things I want to do. Perhaps the stuff that nobody else will see. The stuff that goes on inside of me or in secret. What do I actually believe? I say it's more blessed to give than to receive. So let's have a look at my bank account and find out, do I actually live by that faith? What if I was to take some of the things I do actually live by and try and put those into words? Would it look like Jesus at all? So when it comes to faith, we can almost separate, can't we, between the things that we think we should believe or the things that we say that we believe and then the way that we live, which demonstrates because all of my behavior is prompted by my motivations and my beliefs. See, as a human being, this side of heaven, this side of meeting God, Face to face. We journey by face, don't we? Not by sight. And there are these two poles, I think, that, that call us, that, that, that attract us. On one hand, I must have hope. To try and live without hope is painfully 
difficult. All of us are hoping in something. All of us are hoping for something. We must have hope. You see it time and time again that the people who are journeying through something hear those words or get that letter from the doctor or whatever it is, and as soon as hope is gone, they won't bury you yet, but life is going. Life is seeping out of you. We must have hope. The other pole I think that attracts us is the reality that I must have truth. I've got to know. I mean, if I'm trusting in something and it's not going to save me, it's not going to help me, then what's the point? So I must have hope. I must have truth. And I'm pulled between the two. Sometimes there's evidence that comes bombarding at you as a human being that seems contradictory at times, and so we bounce back and forth between hope and truth. And then there is the reality that in between these two things, I must also make a choice. I can't stay forever pulled between the two. I have to stand. I have to choose. I have to live. And I guess in some ways, life in exile highlights something of that dilemma. For the people of Israel, torn out of everything that they knew, ripped away from the temple, the synagogues, the Torah, everything that fed their faith and nourished them and inspired them, They had to work out what does it look like to live in Babylon. For others scattered across the Babylonian Empire, how can we sing the songs of the Lord in a foreign land? That is a legitimate question. It's a literal question they were asking. What does it mean to worship God, to celebrate God, when all of that has been taken away? What are those things that were the theological opinions? that we thought were so important, we formed Pharisees and Sadducees and other groups to debate them that now seem so irrelevant where I am. What faith will sustain me here? What are those lines that I will not cross? What are those hills that I'm prepared to die on? And what do I have to let go of in, in exile? What does it mean to live here? What does faith look like? here. It's interesting, we don't just see it among the Jewish people. Last time we were in this uh, series together, was it last Sunday? I can never remember. And we were looking at uh, Daniel chapter 2 last time, uh, and the prophecy, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream of that huge statue, gold, silver, bronze, iron, and then iron and clay. And at the end of it, the fact that Daniel was able to know what the king was dreaming and then interpret the dream stunningly accurately was enough to make King Nebuchadnezzar fall on his face before Daniel. And I can't emphasize enough, words won't do justice. This just didn't happen. King Nebuchadnezzar bowed before no one, but he's bowing before Daniel, and he comes out with this. Surely your God is the God of gods, the King of, the Lord of kings, uh, and the revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. That when all of these kingdoms have crumbled and fallen and nothing but dust on the pages of history, this God, this kingdom will still remain unchallenged, unthreatened, unrivaled, still growing, still advancing. Uh, The momentum that is on God's work cannot be understated. Surely your God, he says, is the God of gods, the Lord of kings. So he's heard this. He's known this. He's responded to this. He's promoted Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to kind of sit in roles. In the next chapter, we read that his next biggest and best idea is to build a statue of himself 
made of gold. Now, you might have thought the dream he just had, the interpretation he just had, would have been enough to make him go, I don't think statues are a good way to use my time. I don't think they're a good idea. I think I've learned that there is a God who is higher. There's a Lord who is over the nations. There's a sovereign to whom we will all one day have to bow down. So why does he do this? Why does he in one moment say this and then in the next go and do something totally different? Uh, of all different nations from all over the planet, places that had been conquered and then divided and scattered among them. And each one brought with them their own belief system, their own ways of worship, their own rituals. And so historians believe this was Nebuchadnezzar's attempt to try and unite it all, to bring everyone together under one banner. Uh, when you hear, and bless you, Yuri, for reading it all, uh, the chapter kind of reads, anybody read David Williams' books where there's just long lists of stuff? It kind of reads like that, doesn't it? When you hear the sound of the harp, flute, lyre, bagpipes, synthesizer, drum box, whatever it is, I don't know. When you, when you hear all of that, everyone's to come out to the plains of Jura, where this huge statue, a 90-foot-high statue of gold, the image of Nebuchadnezzar himself, when you hear all of that, everyone's going to come and worship together. I thought you said, Nebuchadnezzar, that Daniel's God was the God of gods. But suddenly now that's disappeared. I thought you said he was the Lord of kings. Suddenly that's fallen by the wayside. Everyone bow down and worship my image. And there's a punishment for it. If you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately so here's the law. There's no second chances. There's no three strikes and you're out. Thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. And I don't know quite how it happened. If Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did the sound of the instruments and didn't go with everyone to the plains of Jura, or if they went there and in a crowd of thousands that all bowed down together, three people stood, three lonely figures, and so some Chalcedons or astronomers spot this and come to the king. And they said, those people that you put over us, those Jewish exiles, they pay, now I love these words, they pay no attention to you, king. Isn't it interesting, when we want people to agree with us, we kind of egg things up a little bit. They haven't just broken one rule. They pay no attention to you at all, O king. They refuse to worship this statue that you've set up. So initially, the king calls them in, and they have this audience with the king. And these three powerless exiles are brought before the most powerful man on the planet. And he repeats this to them. If when you hear the sound, you bow down and worship, very good. But if you do not, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. And here's the question that comes. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Back in Daniel's day, the majority of the belief systems that existed were sort of called localized deities. They were local gods. So to put it in other terms, if you're a fan of comic books, you know, Batman looks after Gotham. So Batman's Gotham's hero, and other heroes look after different places. I won't go into it because I'll just geek you all out. Uh, it was kind of like that. 
And battles that went on between different nations were really a question of, is our God stronger than your God? Is our God better than your God? And so for the Jewish people, as they're scattered among the nations of the world, their question is, can I still encounter God here? Or does God live in Israel? Does he live in Jerusalem? Is that the only place I can encounter God? And all of this is going on, so Nebuchadnezzar feels pretty confident here. What God will be able to rescue you from my hand? You're, you're three blokes. I'm sitting here with armies and commanders-in-chief. And there is a blazing furnace. I don't know if any words from me could ever capture the terror of the thought of being thrown into a blazing furnace. The sheer levels of panic that they must have been feeling. The sheer levels of anxiety and fear. You remember in, in chapter 1, Dan, um, one of the king's officials, a guy called Ashpenaz, notices that Daniel is not eating from the king's table. And he goes to him and says, there's wine, there's food, why aren't you eating? He explains, well, that would defile me. And so the man says, well, if the king finds out I'm not making you eat from it, he'll kill me. So these people know the king will kill anybody who disagrees with him. Even one of his own staff members, one of his own Babylonians, he's, he's not above doing that. So this is not an empty threat. Flames of fire are what await you if you do not bow down and worship. What God will be able to rescue you from my hand? And I don't know what any of us would say in that moment. We could try and conjure something up now, but that's because we're not stood looking at a fiery furnace. None of us know until that moment the difference between what we say we believe and what we actually believe. And so then they address the king. King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you've set up. That's faith. I'm not trying to somehow flip it or explain it or dance around it or deny it. I just want for a moment to walk through these words together. The God we serve is able. If there's one thing, if there's one foundation stone we need, it's this. The God we serve is able. Even now, even in Babylon, even if I can't work out what that's going to look like, what it means to be fireproof here in Babylon, I'm still going to believe my God is able. Now, bearing in mind, these aren't glib promises. They are stood before the most powerful man on the planet who at this point, we're told in the text, is angry. He's burning. That You do not want to make a dictator angry. and he's, he's burning with fury. But the God we serve is able. It's an amazing thing to say at this point in time. The God we serve. Our God. 
He's able. I wonder today, is your God able? What is your God able to do? If you had to sit and make a list, what you're expecting from now until eternity from God, what, what's he able to do? If you really want to know what you really believe he's able to do, take a look at your prayer life. Because what we believe he's able to do will, will affect what we're asking for, right? What we believe he's able to do will affect the way that we're serving, the way that we're, we're living. What is your God able to do? I believe our God is able to heal. I've, I've seen him do it time and time again. I believe God is able to step into situations where relationships have been broken. And humanly speaking, there was no way back. And I've seen him restore it. Our God is able to do that. We know from our own history that God is able to bless a nation. In two years back in 1904, 100,000 people. Our God is able. He is. He will, he'll deliver us from your hand, your majesty. Next to the God we serve, your hand is tiny. Next to the God we serve, your, your power, your authority is minuscule. But that is not all they say, and sometimes we wish it was all they said. But then they find these words. But even if he does not. Somehow there's a difference, isn't there, between the God we serve and the God we think serves us. Even if he doesn't. Even if he's able to, but there's some other purpose in my suffering. Even if there's some other hidden secret reason for my death that I do not understand. <coughs> he's able, but if he doesn't, I will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you've set up. The word faith in Hebrew is the word imona, from where we get our word amen from. So anytime we finish a prayer with the word amen, we're saying it's a statement of faith. I, I believe. I'm giving this to you, I, I believe. What's really interesting about Hebrew words is that they're often grouped together. And so if you look at the roots of a Hebrew word and the other words that kind of spring out of that, there's a shared understanding that comes. So the root of the word imona is the, is the letter M, E-M, the letter M, which literally in the Hebrew means mother. And so in the same way that all of us have a mum who has loved us and cared for us, whether that's our biological mum or adoptive mum, whoever it's been for us, we've had somebody who's been there to nurture us. So faith is the thing that nurtures us. Faith is the thing that, that sustains us, that feeds us that guides us. Some people maybe don't know their earthly mum, their, their, their biological mums, but we've all still got one. And all people live by faith, whether they realize it or not. All people are making uh, hopes and pledges and, 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 and um, doing things on the hope of something. Another two words that are related, talking about motherhood in the Hebrew, is the word for, for womb. Uh, and the word for mercy. They're actually the same letters, but the last few of mercy are just slightly rejumbled up. 
And so for people of faith, we are nurtured in mercy. Isn't that an amazing thought? We're incubated in the mercy of God. We grow in the mercy of God. That's where faith grows. That's where hope grows. That's where life comes. The word amen is then used by Jesus often in his teaching ministry in in a Greek way. Aramaic for him, but Greek when it was written down. Those times when Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, he's literally saying, amen, amen, I say to you. Because these are things which, which, are, which hold. They're not just pledges. They're not just empty words. These are trustworthy sayings. And so sometimes when we think of the word faith, we think of it as an abstract, different thing from us. But it's always a, a, a doing word, an active word. It's a clinging on to. It's a leaning on. It's a trusting in. That's what faith is, and that's what we see here. But even if he does not, they acknowledge in this moment that he might have another way. You might have another will, but even in those circumstances, they choose faithfulness. They choose to be steadfast. Even when they can't see the what or the why, we will not serve your gods or worship the image that you've set up. And so these three men are escorted to the entrance of the flaming furnace. They're bound up and thrown into the fire. The king is so angry, he orders that the furnace be turned up so it's seven, degrees, uh, seven times hotter. Now, I don't know how they measured that in the ancient world. There was no little dial on the outside, but the number seven, I know, in the ancient world represented perfection. So it's just make it as hot as you can. It's make the flames as, as, as high as they can go. And so much so that the men that carry them up to the edge of the furnace are themselves consumed by fire. That's how impossible it was to breathe. That's how dangerous it was, even to stand at the entrance. And they're thrown in. Nebuchadnezzar's watching. And then he has another question. He says, didn't we, didn't we throw three people into the fire? And they said, yes, we did. We threw three. He says, I can see four. That's faith. When you can see what others can't see. When you are walking through the fire, knowing that you're not alone. What's really interesting is that the only thing that got burnt up, apart from the other soldiers, was the bound, the, the bonds that, that bound them. Sometimes the devil can overplay his hand, can't he? And it's his own fire that burns him. So those bonds are burnt away and these four men are walking around together and he says and the fourth one looks like a son of the gods some people can say things without realizing what they're saying can't they he looks divine looks like an angel looks like a son of the gods so these men are, are brought out and again king nebuchadnezzar falls down recognizes that god has done this and so he turns it around and says, if anyone prays to any god other than this god, <laughs> then their homes are going to be turned to, to rubble and they'll be thrown into fire. I was reading recently about um, the church in North Korea, who some of you will know is kind of the Babylon of today. It's an impossible 
painfully impossible place to be a Christian. And yet faith is exploding. People who know what it will mean to join a church and become Christian are joining a church and becoming Christian. There's a group of Christians who are running a pirate radio. I don't know what that does to your theology, but I think it's brilliant. They're running a pirate radio. And so for an hour a day, they are illegally broadcasting on a radio station scriptures and promises and prayers for people to listen to, knowing that if they're ever caught, what that's going to mean. We won't know what it means. They will just disappear. But they know what it means. They were saying recently they were broadcasting and somebody in hospital was looking for a radio station and stumbled across this. I'm hearing some words of scripture being read and thought, oh, this is incredible. Hearing them for the first time. This is in our generation, guys. This is today, hearing the Bible for the first time. Hearing these words, thinking, this is absolutely incredible. And then thinking, if it's true that there is a God who hears and answers our prayer, I'm going to pray for my daughter who's in hospital. And so she begins to pray, and this daughter is healed. And the woman is so excited about it, she starts to tell people, my daughter's been healed. So they started to ask, well, how, what, what happened? How did it work? And she said, I, I heard on the radio that there's a God who hears prayer. So I thought, well, I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask him to heal. And he did. And eventually the authorities heard about this. And she was so excited about it. She said, I can't promise I won't tell anyone else. And so they locked her and her daughter up in prison. And recently there have been stories coming out from people who visit her about the guards that take her her food. One day, a North Korean guard approaches her with meal, a meal on a tray and backed away from the door really quickly. And she said, no, I, I need my food. He said, I'm not, I'm not coming in there. So he sent somebody else to bring the food and they, went to, they approached the door where she was staying and they said the same thing. Eventually, one of them kicked this tray so it slid underneath the door. And she thought, that, that's bizarre. That's really, really odd. Next day, time for food. Soldiers come round. We've been warned not to come any closer than this and slide the tray under. Eventually, she says to one of them, shouts down the corridor to them, why doesn't anybody bring me my food? You do it for everyone else, but wine's thrown under the door and it goes everywhere. And I, I don't get the same amount. What's, what's happening? And they said, people have seen a flaming lion in the corner of your jail cell. And so they will not come to you because you've got a lion in your corner. It was two years ago in North Korea. As far as I know, she is still there. Now, I would love to stand here and promise you a suffering-free life if you follow Jesus. I cannot promise you that. Anybody who's selling you that is a con man. But I can promise you that in your jail cell, you have a lion in your corner. There is a fourth man in the flames. And some of you know that. Some of you are walking through situations, and if he wasn't with you, you'd have been burnt up. You'd have been consumed. You'd have fallen down. Others of you just need to be reminded today, don't look at the fire. Look at who is with you in the fire. 
You've got a lion in your corner. The forces of darkness know it and will not come near you. He is with you. He's for you. So we pray together. Can we stand as we pray together for just a moment? The God we serve is able. The God we serve is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. The God we serve is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. So my prayer for each and every one of us today, whether we're looking at flames, standing in flames, out the other side, is that you will know who is with you. If there are people here today who are grappling with the pain of even if he doesn't, those of us here who are living with the hurt of even if he didn't, I pray that you would know there is a lion in your corner. You are not alone. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Your God is able. The Spirit of the living God, we pray right now that you would so flood us with your presence and your peace. That we would know that you don't just go with us, you go before us. You go behind us. All around about us are the everlasting arms. And that in all things you are able to work for the good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. even in bad things, even in evil things, even in the things that break us, you are able to work for good. So give us eyes, we pray, to see who is with us. And give us a faith that will hold, a faith that will stand, not based on quick or easy answers or trying to turn things into good stories, but based in hope, in the truth, that you are able. And that in all things, at all times, you are worthy.